The state of white-collar crime prosecution, by some measures, has never been worse. Uh, Jesse Eisinger has written a terrific book, one of the best business books I've read in a long time, called The Chicken Bleep Club. It's not actually called The Chicken Bleep Club. That's just how we say it in the radio to be, keep the FCC happy. But it's this amazing story about uh, how hard it is to prosecute white-collar criminals these days and the changes that have happened uh, really in the last 20 years that have made that the case. Jesse Eisinger joins us right now, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winner, Jesse Eisinger. Glad to have you on. Talk to me about about your idea for the book. Um, Our friend John Edwards says, "I said, what's the what do we know about the book? Oh, it's the thing that that Jesse's been talking about for the last thirty years, crying (laughs) to the heavens." And as someone who's known you for twenty five years, I can say that that's actually true. But what's the the nature of the book? Well, I also say that uh, stocks are going to go down. Right? Those are the uh, that's the thing I've also always said. Uh, So true. The uh, book is about how the Justice Department has lost the will and ability to prosecute top corporate executives. And we're not just talking about the financial crisis and not just talking about the banks. This persists to today and affects top companies from industrials to retailers to tech to pharmaceuticals. This is a problem that corporate executives have impunity in this country. Uh, and, and in the Chicken Bleep Club, you, you, you detail some of the sort of people who've been railing against this, uh, and we're going to have some of them join us over the course of the next hour. But uh, when you when you went after this story, was it were there surprises that came up along the way as you researched the book? Well, one of the surprises is that there are a lot of heroes who are working against the bureaucracy and the legal system. One of them is Paul Pelletier, who's going to come up. Uh, he's, uh, you know was a great prosecutor and a serious guy, and he took on major corporations, and he really banged heads with the Obama administration. Surprisingly enough, the Obama administration, you know, we saw the results, but inside it, they didn't really want to go after these prosecutions, and there were some people who did, and they got thwarted. Uh, Well, I can't think of a better time to bring in Paul, then. Paul's on the line with us right now. Paul Pelletier is now a a partner at Pepper Hamilton, but he's a mentioned long-term prosecutor. And Paul, when when you uh, uh, thanks for joining us. When you uh, were uh, in the Justice Department, I thought one of the interesting things Jesse pointed out is that you were one of the guys who was teaching other prosecutors how to prosecute these crimes. How is white collar crime difficult or different for a prosecution than, than other types of crime? Um, well, th- thank you, Corey, for having me on. Um, and Jesse, nice, uh, nice being on with you. Um, the, these crimes, white collar crimes, are, are different in, to, only to the extent that they're more complicated. Um, But the way you investigate them, the way you prosecute them, is essentially the same way you prosecute every, investigate and prosecute every crime. But they're much more complicated. And then once you do, as Jesse points out well in his book, once you do prosecute them, you're always going after the top shelf of the defense bar. You're always going, you're always being fly-specked by the court system. So they get a lot more attention um, then your run-of-the-mill drug case, your run-of-the-mill uh, fraud case. But other than that, you investigate them and you prosecute them essentially the same way. And when, when, you, when you do this, I, 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 it seems also that one of the things that I was sort of surprised in Jesse's book, in, 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 that, that your notion was indict somebody, move fast, good things are going to happen. Indict someone who's culpable, move fast, and um, when I say good things are going to happen, what I, what I wanted to do is teach prosecutors not to be afraid of when bad things did happen, because invariably uh, a million things can go wrong that you never would think of or, or, or would even imagine. But 
um, if you do if if you do your job right, if you investigate it properly, if you have your agents prepared properly, when those things go wrong, and they invariably will, you can handle them. And um, and that that's principally the reason why I acted that way. But I I do think the notion I was brought up okay. in Miami as a baby prosecutor, and we always had the notion that the perfect was the enemy of the good, and that real time prosecutions were were sort of the best way to affect justice. And when I got to the Department of Justice in 2002 in the height of the Enron crisis, um, the, the leaders of the Department of Justice felt that same way and, and missionized us in that same way. And so that, that was sort of the way I was brought up as a prosecutor. And Paul, they really do it differently today where they don't do these kind of prosecutions in the same way that they do mob prosecutions or drug prosecutions where they f- try to flip low-level executives to get to the top-level executives. And today they sort of proceed, I, I wonder if you agree with this, from a notion that eventually they're just going to settle with the corporation for money and uh, that the prosecu- prosecutions of the individuals is sort of a secondary notion. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to just flat out say that that's the intention of all the prosecutors and all Department of Justice employees. But I do say that that's where it ends up a lot, and I think there's a, a number of reasons for that. A lot of which you explore in your book. But I think that um, I think that the revolving door, and I think that the lack of or the dearth of of training um, since 2009, and, and how to how to do real time prosecutions. It, this is what it has born, and this is what it has brought forth. And I, and, and I think that you hit that nail right on the head in the book. Paul, was the focus, uh, this shift in the focus towards terrorism prosecution something that really hurt the Justice Department's ability to go for white-collar crime? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that it hurt the Department of Justice's ability to go for white-collar crimes, because that, that shift in terrorism happened in, in, you know, in about 2001, and the corporate fraud tri- strike force happened in about 2002. And, and I think that... Um, you know, people generally view the, the corporate fraud strike force in the Enron days as it generally view it as a success. So what I do think it did is it depleted the, the white-collar agents that we, that we traditionally used in white-collar prosecution. Those are the FBI agents, and I think that the FBI um, um, was depleted in that regard. But what we did in the, in the fraud section of the Department of Justice is we brought in the United States Postal Inspection Service to help build teams to prosecute this, to, to sort of um, hopefully cover those areas where, on right. an investigative side, we were, we were weaker. Well, you are listening to Bloomer Markets on Bloomberg Radio. Jesse Eisinger is still with me right now uh, from ProPublica, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of The Chicken Bleep Club, uh, a book about uh, how white-collar prosecutions have uh, really slowed down. Paul Pelletier is one of the main characters in that book and also still with us. Uh, a partner now at Pepper Hamilton. Uh, and Paul, uh, another thing that uh, Jesse uh, points out so well in the book is this, this revolving door, uh, b- b- prosecutors who go on to be, uh, become defenders of, of people accused of crimes in, um, of similar fashion. Um, did, did you sense a change at some point uh, in the Justice Department of the kinds of people who were uh, uh, showing some new timidity about uh, following white-collar prosecutions? Well, yes. I mean, it wasn't a sea change, and it, and it didn't happen overnight. But but I agree with um, what Jesse's position in the book is. Uh, I personally witnessed sort of in, in beginning in about 2010 um, an evacuation of experienced white collar prosecutors in the first four years after um, that la- the last presidential administration. Seventy percent of the uh, white collar prosecutors in the fraud section where I worked left the left the unit, which was unprecedented. And so um, then um, 
what happened after that is that you you seem to get a lot of newer prosecutors coming out of firms, and there's nothing wrong with um, defending people accused of crimes. I do that now. But um, you get a lot of people coming out of firms who seemed to... Um, to want to, to build their resume uh, at the Department of Justice and then leave after a three-year commitment. And while I don't know that's true in every instance, and certainly not true, I think it has become sort of what the public perception is and certainly a reality in many cases. Hey, Paul, are you seeing any changes now under Jeff Sessions at the DOJ? you get any sense that uh, people, prosecutors are returning uh, or anything like that? I, I, I haven't. It's, I, I think it's still too soon to tell, and I haven't um, seen that. But I know, sort of that that there is a recognition within some U.S. attorneys' offices, and certainly the criminal division, fraud section where I worked, is a recognition that a, a revolving door perception is not good, either from a perception perspective or from an actual tackling the hard work of prosecuting these cases perception. I think that at least within the unit, the fraud section, um, I think there's a recognition that they need to start working harder to retain people and, and to, you know, make the job such that it's, it's fun enough and interesting enough, and it always is and can be, to continue to retain people. I, I think I've seen a recognition, more of a recognition, that that circumstance exists. Um, keeping those prosecutors, but the white fraud, what is it that's so special about the, the having that experience in white-collar uh, uh, prosecutions that's different than just keeping prosecutors around? Um, what's, I'm not so sure what's different except that when I, you know, I'm not saying my experience is the same as everyone else's, but when I was in the Department of Justice, um, most people who, who I hired or, or who interviewed and were employed by the Department of Justice and the White Collar World were doing it not to build their resume, but because they, they, they felt a sense of, of duty and of public service. And while we all recognize that you can't do that for, most people can't do that for a lifetime, particularly in New York, Washington, and Miami, where I worked, certainly um, it's such a, it can be such a fulfilling job that I always believed if you, if you made the job as fulfilling and enjoyable as you could for people, they would stay longer. And um, I think that that actually played out for quite a while. And then um, it, it seemed to take a turn differently, and, and I'm hoping, like I said, Jesse uh, and Corey, that that that's on the re- that that's, that way of life is now retreating, and, and we're getting people who are doing it more for the public service than for getting a job out in private practice. Don't they? Uh, you know, the revolving door really is an issue of like not wanting to be a cowboy, not wanting to be unreasonable to develop a reputation. I mean, you seem to have uh, not been afraid to. Uh, piss off a few defense attorneys, but uh, your colleagues don't seem to do that very often. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. That certainly, was, as you know, as you've said, that certainly was never my mindset, and it certainly <laughs> didn't seem to be the mindset of the people I worked with and trained. Tra- and trained. I think that that, that um, again, I think that's part of a training or inculcation process. And while I, I certainly recognize what you say is a fact in, in many cases, I generally think that if people are encouraged to do that and to prosecute the hard cases, uh, hard but righteous cases, I really think that that's what they want to do. And, and I think that if, they, if they're trained or, or that they believe that people won't back them up when they do it, I think that they'll retreat and not do it. So uh, I wish I could say it's as simple as people not wanting to... Um, 
um, for lack of a better word, piss off uh, people who they might want to work for in the future. I think it's I, I think it's much more complicated and deeper than that. And I think it all goes back to training and 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 missionizing and supporting people to do the right thing. And that should be the theme song for Jesse Eisinger's terrific book, The Chicken Bleep Club. Jesse's still with us, as well as Catherine Rumler, one of the uh, characters in his terrific book, uh, who's not a partner at Latham Watkins, about to uh, talk to us about white-collar defense. And, and I thought, uh, Catherine, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I thought it'd be useful to have you describe to us uh, the honest services uh, uh, law or, uh, and, and how that, the interpretation of that may be hurting the ability to prosecute white-collar crime. Sure. Um, so the honest services uh, wire fraud statute, as it you know is known, is basically it was a tool that prosecutors could use, where you couldn't prove that um, that a particular you know defendant had used the wires. What that usually means is the phone or the email to deprive someone of uh, money or property, but that they were they were basically depriving them of something intangible. Um, and in this, what uh, the term is used is the theft of honest services, meaning that, you know, you're, if you have a fiduciary duty to work on behalf of a certain company, for example, and that you're really not working on their behalf. Um, so you can't prove that the defendant stole money from somebody else. Um, in the way that we typically think about a fraud, but that they were acting either in their own self-interest, and that's usually the theory, or they were acting some way inconsistent with um, the, the entity that they owed a fiduciary duty. And, of course, Kathy, the uh, Supreme Court then uh, knocks this statute out uh, for the purposes of the context of white-collar corporate crime. And uh, how significant do you think that was in uh, diminishing the DOJ's ability to go after these cases? Well, I think it was, it was pretty significant because a lot of cases you just can't prove, particularly in corporate fraud, you can't prove that someone was, you know, quote, stealing, stealing from the till, um, you know, but rather that they were acting in ways, for example, one of the theories that we had in the Enron case is that they were, um, they were doing sort of accounting uh, chicanery in order to, you know, inflate uh, the stock price because they, their compensation was, was heavily weighted towards stock. And so it, it's like an indirect benefit. And, and the theory would be under the old, the old theory before the Supreme Court essentially said that that um, couldn't be done by prosecutors was that, you know, if you're, if you're acting not, not in the best interest of the company, but merely to sort of falsely inflate the stock price, you're violating your, honest, your duty of honest services to the company itself. And the Supreme Court said um, that that was too, uh, too expansive of a reading of the statute of the law and said that prosecutors couldn't bring cases like that anymore. Uh, that that seems like it was a, a pretty big blow to the prosecutions of or potential prosecutions of lots of white collar criminals. You know, it ended up being uh, it ended up not being a significant blow uh, in in the conviction of Jeff Skilling, which is which is the case that uh, that the court used the Supreme Court used to really narrow or trim back the statute. Um, it ended up not having any practical impact for his conviction. But yes, I think certainly for future convictions or for future prosecutions, you know, it it, it made it a lot tougher. Do you think it, it basically took a tool out of the tool the tools uh, kit for prosecutors? 
Do you think, Kathy, that the DOJ has done enough careful thinking about what tools it's lost over the last 15 years or so and how to replace them and whether to go to Congress and ask for more statutory powers? I think they probably should be doing more. You know, there were some discussions after the Supreme Court um, narrowed the, the reach of the Honest Services Wire Fraud Statute about, you know, a legislative fix. Um, it, they didn't, you know, I don't know really how, how aggressively that was pushed, pushed by the Justice Department. You know, in my own opinion, it wasn't pushed aggressively enough. Um, and there were always concerns about how you draft a statute that um, is not so expansive that it seems to criminalize, you know, kind of everyday conduct, um, but that still captures, you know, the really core kind of fraudulent activity that, you know, isn't covered isn't covered by other laws. Who doesn't want to see white-collar crime prosecuted? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, white collar, you know, I'll, I'll start the list. White-collar criminals. Yeah. Well, white-collar <laughs> yeah. criminals, true. You know, but, but the other thing um, you know, to keep in mind is with, with most white-collar cases, often the question is, was a crime actually committed? It's not that everyone agrees, okay, a crime's been committed, who did it? And that's what you see, you know, in other types of crimes, you know, murder, you know, rape, armed robbery. You know that a crime was committed, and the question is just who did it? White-collar crime, the question is, is often, was there a crime committed? Was this conduct criminal or not? Um, and though, that's what uh, the focus is. And so, you know, having... Um, clarity in the law about what is and is not um, criminal conduct is really important. And much of the uh, kind of jurisprudence over the years in the white-collar crime space has been around that very question is, you know, is this conduct actually criminal? Um, you know, we saw that, that just recently in the Supreme Court um, in, the, in the Governor McDonald case, you know, the governor of Virginia, I mean, essentially, uh, that was the question before the court there. Everyone sort of agreed that the conduct was really, um, um, you know, bad, bad. <laughs> egregious, yes. uh, gross, uh, gross, greedy. Um, you know, it seemed to the average person that it was wrong what he did. But uh, the question was, was it in fact criminal? Yeah, I, you know, as you know, I think these the courts are just making a series of bad mistakes here. But uh, let me uh, run my argument by you. You know my argument well in the oh, book, just which is that— thirty seconds left here. Jim, okay, sorry. that you know that these guys have lost the skill set to prosecute these things. Do you agree with that? That the DOJ has lost this skill set? Well, it's a general, it's a broad generalization, of course. But I think that, um, like any other skill, you have to do it a lot to keep the skill well honed. And, um, and I think that, you know, there has been sort of a, a loss of that expertise within yeah. the department, kind of writ large. So in general, yes, I think that's a concern. Kathy Romler, partner now at Latham Watkins, and uh, Jesse Eisinger, a Pulitzer Prize winner and author of The Chicken Bleep Club, uh, where these issues are described in great detail. Jesse, uh, thanks so much for joining us for the hour. And Kathy, thank you as well. You're listening to Loomer Markets. I'm Loomer Radio.